reading this morning will come from uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. So when you find your place, would you join us in standing as we read God's word and allow him to speak this morning. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, it's comforting to know that uh, even this part of the story you were in charge of. We can see the work of the Holy Spirit directing and bringing your Son, who as we have sung about this morning, brings new birth is a savior to his people. And it doesn't end just there. But Lord, what a blessing it has been to travel this story through the book of Matthew. And even leaving off last week at the crucifixion, the story begins here. The story began before time. And we thank you for that. We ask your blessing not just on the reading of the word and the praying about the word, but that the word become alive in each of us as we participate today. We pray for Chris as he shares the truth of the scriptures to us, that the same spirit that brought birth would do a work on behalf of each one of us here in receiving the word. We ask your blessing not just on this day, but as we continue to grow in knowing you even in a deeper and intimate way, we pray these things, these things through your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as much as our culture would like to ignore or sanitize this reality, 
Christmas is about the celebration of the birth of the Christ, namely Jesus of Nazareth. But why should that be celebrated? Why should the birth of the Christ, first off, what does that even mean? The birth of the Christ, what does Christ mean? But why should that fact be celebrated? Why has it been celebrated for centuries upon centuries? And for the answer to that this morning, we are going back to Matthew. Matthew, one of Jesus' closest followers, the follow, one of the followers of the Christ in his earthly ministry. So Matthew's going to give us the account and logic behind Jesus' birth, the birth of the Christ. Now, if you're joining us this morning as a visitor, if you haven't been here with us that long, we've been studying Matthew for almost three years. So we've been through this passage a number of years ago, but where we're at in Matthew now in our study, as Jim alluded to, we, we are right in the throes of the crucifixion. We are, in fact, last week, we, we, uh, Jesus was nailed to the cross. Where we've left him, he is not dead yet, but he will be this next week as we come back to it. It was when he will die and he will be buried. In God's providence, he has juxtaposed these two seasons of Jesus' birth and Jesus' death. But realistically, and we can even see this in Matthew's account, those are two, those two realities, those two events are always supposed to be held together. They're never supposed to be separated. You're never supposed to think of Jesus' birth without his death, burial, and resurrection. But what is it all about? What is the celebration of the birth of the Christ all about? Now, Matthew starts his gospel. His gospel is written primarily, though not exclusively, to a Jewish Christian audience. And he is at pains throughout his gospel to prove that Jesus is the Christ. Now, what does that mean? What does that title mean? Maybe you've never even thought about that. What does Christ mean? Christ means anointed one. And what it alludes to is an Old Testament promise, really starting all the way back into Genesis, and really goes back to God's initial design for humanity, that, that God has always designed uh, humanity to live under a king. He's always designed humanity to live under a king and uh, a kingdom that would be ruled by a just and righteous king that would work in the world, advance culture, advance, uh, tame the world, reshape the world for God's glory. God, the father, is the ultimate king, and yet he tasked the initial king, Adam, to be a king, to be a priest and king, to rule for God's glory. But then as we follow the story, sin enters the world. There's a coup attempt, essentially, a rebellion against God's rule. But God doesn't stop with his program to have a king. And so he promises to Abraham and to his family, a king's going to come from your line. And then coming later, centuries later, promises David, son of Abraham, that a king would come, and a king would come to rule over Israel, but not just over Israel, but as in, a, in accord with the original design, over all the world, in perfect justice, peace, harmony, 
And the king, the rightful king, the rightful heir to the Davidic throne, and the ultimate heir to the Davidic throne was known as Mashiach, Messiah, which just means, is the Hebrew way of saying anointed one. And if you wanted to say that in Greek, you would say Christ. So when we use the title Christ, we are talking automatically about kingship. And like I said, Matthew in his gospel is at pains to show that Jesus of Nazareth is the true king. And he does that right from the start. Matthew 1 verse 1, the book of the genealogy or the lineage of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew shows uh, how Jesus has the right lineage. From Abraham to David the king, from David the king into exile. Israel, because of its sins, has gone into exile and really in, in large measure was still in exile under the thumb of Rome when Matthew was written. And from the exile to the birth of the Christ. Look at verse 16 where it left off in his genealogy. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. See, Matthew's making a claim. He's saying, this is the king. This is the rightful king, not only over Israel, but over the whole world. And he is now, having kind of given the lineage, the the, the legal rightful claim for Jesus to be the king, he's going to zoom in on the birth of Jesus, because even in that last line in the genealogy, it's a little weird the way he puts it. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, referring to Mary, Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And now what he's going to do in his narrative in 118 through 25, is he's going to zoom in on that. And as he zooms in on the reality of the birth of the Christ, he's going to show that Jesus is the rightful king. Not just for Matthew's original audience, but for us. That Jesus is the rightful king, which leads us to the big idea for Matthew's audience and for us this morning, which is this. Seek rescue from the rightful king, Jesus, conceived from the Holy Spirit. Seek rescue from sin, from the rightful king, Jesus, conceived from the Holy Spirit. So Matthew's going to zoom in on the birth that he's mentioned in 116, and he's going to expound on it in 118 through 25. So let's pick up in verse 18 of the text. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, Jesus the King, the anointed one, took place in this way. It's kind of a heading. Matthew's just leading us into, let me describe this for you. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, promised in marriage, that's the idea, to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, we need to understand a few things to understand what Matthew was saying. We need to understand a few things about the culture of that time. See, what, the way marriage worked in Palestine in the first century Israel, it, it, there would be a negotiation between families, and there would be a time when the bride and the groom would come together and they would sign uh, a marriage agreement. They would, it would formally prom, they would be promised to one another in marriage. That's what's happened here with Joseph and Mary. So there's been negotiations between Mary's family and Joseph's family, and they have 
uh, they've signed the agreement. They've signed the contract, so to speak. But there would often, after the time you signed this contract, you would be known as married. You would be promised to one another. That's what's happened here. But then there would often be a time, a, a time gap up to a year where you wouldn't live together, where the marriage hadn't been consummated yet. And that is exactly the time frame that is being referred to. They've signed the marriage contract. They are promised to one another. They are considered married. The final stage, which will come in some time, is for them to live together and to consummate the marriage. And in that interim period, Mary is found to be with child. Now, Matthew doesn't elaborate on how this was found out. He just says it was found out. We do know from Luke's account that Mary had already been informed that the child she was bearing was from the Holy Spirit. But this is written from Joseph's perspective. This is written from Joseph's perspective. And so perhaps, perhaps Mary had told him, uh, actually, this is, this is from the Holy Spirit. This is not from another man. But that's what Joseph would assume. And that's what everyone else would assume. That the only reason is that everyone else would assume Mary's found to be with child, that the only reason that happened is that she had relations with another man. And that was either Joseph or it was with someone else. Now, Matthew makes very clear from the get-go, he wants his readers in no doubt. He, Matthew uh, writes from his perspective, he says, no, this child was from the Holy Spirit. One of the persons of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, with no man involved, had allowed and enabled the conception of the child, Jesus. But that's written from Matthew's perspective. Joseph doesn't know that. Joseph assumes Mary's had relations with another man. Mary's been unfaithful. And so, what is he going to do? Verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man, a righteous man. That's the word for righteous. He's a righteous man. He is right. He is, doesn't mean that he's sinlessly perfect. It means he is, he is, uh, he is a faithful man. He is obeying God. He's obeying God. The law that he has set down, not perfectly, but demonstrably, in an exemplary way. He's a righteous man, and he's unwilling to put her to shame. And what's he going to do? Based on the fact that he's righteous, and that he also, at the same time, is unwilling to put her to shame. What does that mean? It means, normally when this happened, the law would prescribe that you make this out in the open. You bring it a, a case uh, against Mary for what she has evidently done. And even the law would prescribe that you stone her, kill her. But in this case, it's not going to that level. It's just the idea that he wants to not put her to shame. Shame in that culture was very much more important than in our culture. Our culture is very shameless. But in that culture, in that time, shame and honor are everything. You want honor, you want to live an honorable way, you want to have uh, the right reputation before God and the community. 
And the idea of first, uh, a birth out of wedlock was shameful. Be shameful for Mary. It would be, if, if Joseph continues with the marriage, it would bring shame on him. It would bring shame on him and it would even go against, it seems, the letter of the law. He's, if he's a righteous man, if he's really doing what God wants him to do in accord with the letter of the law, then he ought to. He's doing the right thing. He is not going ahead with the marriage. He is going to send her away. That is the right thing according to all that he knows about the situation and according to all human expectation. That is the right thing for him to do. But at the same time, we see not only his righteousness, his justice in it, but also his, his generosity. He's unwilling to put her to shame. He, does, he wants to keep it quiet as much as possible. Resolved, he planned to divorce her, to send her away quietly. Now that's, that's a right plan. That's Joseph's right plan, his righteous plan for Mary's suspect pregnancy. But there's more to it. There's more to it. Look at verses 20 through 23, and we see that Joseph receives God's perspective concerning this pregnancy. So we see everything from his perspective. Yes, Matthew has clued us in to his readers. He's clued us in that Joseph's thinking all wrong about this, but Joseph doesn't know that. Um, he, he, just, uh, he, he makes the, the logical conclusion to what has happened here. But God needs to come, and he needs to send a messenger to give Joseph the perspective, the heavenly perspective on what is happening. And this happens in verses 20 through 23. Look at verse 20. But as he considered these things, or really the idea is after he considered these things, he's already made his plan. He's already made his intention. Behold, which is an intention getter. It's like, whoa, something startling is about to happen. And what happens? An angel of the Lord. An angel just means a messenger. This is a heavenly messenger from God's court, um, courtroom, so to speak, his throne room. Uh, a messenger of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Now, don't miss son of David. Son of David is another way of referring to the heir to the Davidic throne, the king. That whole genealogy that happens in the first part of chapter 1, he is highlighting, the angel is highlighting, Joseph, you're the heir to the Davidic throne. And really what the message that this angel is going to bring has everything to do with the king and the one who has the right to reign over Israel and over the world. So the, the angel starts with that. The messenger starts with that. Joseph, son of David. And what does he tell him? Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Now, if the angel is saying, don't fear, then evidently Joseph was afraid, and we can already see that. What is he afraid of? He's afraid of disobeying God's law, getting entangled in an illicit relationship, a relationship, a marriage relationship that's already been compromised. He's afraid of shame that would come upon him and that he would inherit if he continues with the marriage with Mary, brings it to culmination. And the angel says, don't, don't be afraid of all that. Don't be afraid of the shame. Don't be afraid of the any idea that you're breaking God's law, why? Why does the messenger from the Lord say this? 
for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, Matthew's already said this, but Joseph gets this information for the first time. God has to send a messenger from his throne room to say, what is heaven's perspective on all of this? What is God's perspective on this birth? Joseph needs this, and so what does God say? What has happened with Mary? Mary is already carrying Jesus in the womb, and he's saying, that happened. God is saying through his messenger, that happened through the Holy Spirit. This is pure. This is holy. There is no illicit or illegal or wrongful aspect of this. Far from it. It is the most pure, the most is the purest conception that has ever happened. It is holy, produced by the Holy Spirit. So that's the first reason that Joseph's not to fear. This this is pure, this is holy. It's the exact opposite of what he's thinking, but he needs divine revelation for him to know that. But what's the result of all this? Well, the angel explains. He keeps talking. She, Mary, will bear a son... And you will call his name Jesus. And why are you going to call him Jesus? Why, 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 why this name Jesus? See, naming is a big deal in the Bible. You can see this all throughout. Naming is a huge deal. It, it, is, a, it is tying the name often, not always, but often tying the name with something the child is supposed to be or do. Sometimes it becomes somewhat prophetic, as it does in this case. Let's, fo- let's focus on the name Jesus. What is the name Jesus um, in, in, in uh, Hebrew would have been Yeshua, which is just a shortened form. It's a form of Joshua. Joshua from the Old Testament. The full form in Hebrew would have been Yehoshua, which meant Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. Now, what's the, what is this name, Yahweh? Yahweh is the covenant name of God. It is the name that, it's God's personal name. And all that he ties to it with his character, it is his name that he uses with his covenant people to rescue them. And so when we talk about this name, um, uh, Yahweh saves, it's the idea, it's tying the idea that God is acting to save his people, which is exactly what the angel says. Why are you supposed to name this child Jesus? For he, he will save his people from their sins. Now, Jesus, Joshua, Joshua, Yahweh is salvation, but you're naming him this, you're naming this child this because he will save his people. Well, I thought Yahweh was saving people. Why are you calling, you're saying Jesus is going to save his people? Well, it's because, and as we see in the unfolding chapters of Matthew, that Jesus isn't just a child. He's not even just a child conceived from the Holy Spirit. In fact, he is God incarnate. God has always been. There's never a time when God wasn't. There's never a time that God was born or became to be. God has always eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. One being, three persons. And the person of the Son. He has always eternally been the Son. Ages and millennia, 
as far back as your mind could possibly think. The son has always been the son and the son of the father and the son and the father and the Holy Spirit have enjoyed communion and enjoyment with each other, lacking nothing as the one true God. But in this moment, something changed. The eternal son, without giving up his deity, without giving up any of his uh, nature as God at all, also became a man. So that he is fully God and fully man, such that what? He, God, Yahweh, can save his people from their sins. Now, what does it mean, his people? Whose people? Jesus' people, right? But who's, what does that mean? Well, first and foremost, it means the Jews. First and foremost, it means the Jews. The word, Greek word that's used here for people, it, it often just refers to the Jewish people. And that is first and foremost the reference here, because this is a gospel written primarily, not exclusively, for a Jewish people. Uh, but as we go through the gospel, what we find out is that Israel rejects its Messiah, and the people that Jesus counts as his family, whom he counts as his people, are the people who are his disciples. The word disciple just means follower, a follower of Jesus. So we, we you know, if we were to walk ahead in the story, guys like Simon, Simon Peter, James, John, these, these, these fellows, they see Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the rightful king. And so they're going to follow him. And Jesus calls his followers, those who repent. What does repentance mean? Repentance is an allegiance change. It's turning your allegiance from sin and self, which is how we all start. Uh, it's saying, uh, instead of I, me being king, I'm going to lay down arms and I'm going to swear allegiance to the true king, to Jesus. I'm going to bend the knee. I'm going to surrender. I'm going to yield up the right to rule my own life because you never had that right to begin with. And uh, you are going to acknowledge I'm a rebel and I have sinned against a holy God. We'll talk about sin more in a second, but I am going to in faith and allegiance and what Jesus is going to do to save his people. I'm going to swear allegiance to him. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to follow him. And those, those who do so, Jesus calls his family, his people. He's going to save his people from their sins. Now, we need to realize that the cultural moment, the historical moment that Israel as a nation and as a people are in, they're under the thumb of foreign domination from Rome, and they've been that way. They've been, it's a bit, before Rome, it was Greece. Before Greece, it was Persia. Before Persia, it was Babylon. Why? Because they had sinned. As a people, they had gone after idols. They had lived their own way. They had mocked God. They had gone after other gods, other rulers. They had really gone after themselves. And so God put them into what we call exile, separation, domination by other powers. And the reason they were there is for individual and corporate sin. But if you understand the biblical storyline, then it's, that's not just Israel's problem. It's humanity's problem. You see, humanity started in a garden. Humanity started in walking fellowship with God and knowing the one true God and having an intimate relationship with him, enjoying him, worshiping him. In a pre there was no, there was no uh, lack in the world. There was no war. There was no 
hardship, there was complete bliss and joy because mankind could live in God's presence. That's what we were designed for. We are designed as a people. We are all designed as worshipers. Each one of you in this audience this morning worships. You worship something. It may be yourself. It may be prestige. It may be money. It may be power. I don't know what it is for you, but I do know you worship. We are designed to be a worshiping people. The way, how does that express itself? How does worship express itself in our lives? What do you give your money to? What do you give your time to? What lights up your life? What gives you joy? That's what you worship. What brings you happiness? Or if you are sad, what brought you sadness? Because it shows what you worship. And if what you worship is anything except the one true God, you are a rebel and an idolater and deserve God's judgment. We all start that way. And what God has done, that's what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. They sinned. They went after their own thoughts. They made their own choices. They wanted to be independent rulers. And God banished them from the garden exile. And since that day, humanity has been in exile and we are under exile still away from the presence of God. And so not only is Jesus coming to save his people from, he's not only coming to save Israel from their sins, which is what brought Israel into exile, he's also brought people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation who will repent and place their faith in him, swear allegiance to him as king. He is saving them from exile. To what? To what end? To bring us back into the presence of God, to bring us back into a new heavens and a new earth where Jesus reigns, where God reigns, and we enjoy him forever. And Jesus came to make that a reality. We fast forward in the book of Matthew. Matthew doesn't say here how Jesus is going to save his people from his sins, but as we go to really the focal point of the gospel of Matthew, where we've been the last couple weeks, if you've been with us, in Matthew 27, our sin is so bad, our rebellion is so bad, that the God-man needed to be crucified on the cross, bearing the weight of eternal wrath that you and I deserve before a holy God on a cross. You see, what made the cross so horrible was not the physical pain or the shame, although that was very much there, but it was what Jesus did in the garden of Gethsemane. He said, Father, take this cup, the cup of what? The cup of the Father's wrath away from me. That's what Jesus did on that cross to drink the cup of the Father's wrath to deal with human guilt. You and I cannot deal with our our guilt and our sin. We cannot do it. But Jesus, because he is the infinitely valuable, the sinless, the pure, conceived by the Holy Spirit, Son of God, he could deal with our, uh, our, our sinfulness. He could deal with our impurity. He could cleanse us before a holy God. And that's exactly what he said in that last supper with his disciples, saying, here's my body, here's my blood. Why is my blood being shed? So that you can have forgiveness of sin. So that it can be dealt with and gone. And so that not just that you can be forgiven. It's not as if Jesus just leaves us forgiven and then says, have a nice life. Do whatever you want. No, he brings us back into God's presence to enjoy what we were always designed to enjoy. God himself in a new heavens and a new earth where Christ reigns. That is how Jesus will save his people from his sins. Death on a cross. And not only did he stay dead, he did not stay dead. He rose again and has ascended at the right hand of the Father, which is where he is at this exact moment as I speak to you on his behalf this morning. 
He will save his people from their sins. Yahweh saves because Jesus is Yahweh incarnate, God incarnate, conceived by the Holy Spirit. No human male involved. You see, you look in the Old Testament, you look in the Bible, how is human sinfulness passed on? God calls man his image. But then what you see in Genesis 5 is that after Adam, uh, humans are replicated after Adam's image. And it's like taking a copy of a bad copy. If Adam's got a flawed copy and you keep replicating that image, it's always going to be flawed unless there is no human male involved, which is why Jesus needed to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. He will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus' name, Yahweh saves. That's what the angel explains. But the angel is not done. There's more to it. There's more to it even than this. Now, maybe in your Bible, the quote stops at verse 21, but in the original, there's no indication that the angel stops speaking. I believe the angel is still speaking up through verse 23. And notice what verses 22 and 23 say. All this has taken place. Literally, that's what it says. All this has taken place. The angel is still speaking, saying, all of this that's happening, Joseph... All of this has taken place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, this is the first of a number of quotes in Matthew where Matthew says, this stuff that's happening it is fulfilling, filling up, actualizing something that was spoken of, some pattern or prediction that was spoken of in the Old Testament. And in this case, and you, you might even be familiar with this, with all the Christmas cards that are floating around, this one comes from Isaiah 7:14. And as we have found, as we've walked through Matthew over the last few years, we don't want to just read that individual verse. We want to read the context of that verse to understand the fullness of what is being invoked when the angel says this. Go back to Isaiah 7. And I want to walk you through briefly some of the context. What you need to know heading into Isaiah 7 is that the current Davidic king, the current heir to the Davidic throne in Isaiah's day, which is about let's just say 700 BC, 700 years before Jesus is born. And the current heir of the Davidic throne is a guy named Ahaz. And Ahaz is a terrible king. And he is a faithless king. He doesn't trust God. He trusts the nations. He trusts national power. He's in trouble because he's got uh, foreign armies arrayed against him, trying to, uh, threatening him. And he's got two options. He could trust God. He could trust what God can do. Or he could trust the nation and say, I'm going to go uh, hire some national armies to help me out. And Ahaz does the latter. He says, I'm going to trust in these human armies to come rescue me. Isaiah, the prophet, comes to Ahaz and says, uh, effectively, God's going to rescue you. Whether you depend on these people or not, God's going to rescue you. And in that vein, in verse 10 of Isaiah 7... Isaiah, on behalf of the Lord, says this. Again, Yahweh spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of Yahweh your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, the grave, or high as heaven. 
But Ahaz said, I will not ask. This is like mock humility. I will not ask and I will not put Yahweh to the test. The words sound right, but he's, he's actually mocking God because God told him, ask for me a sign to prove that I will do what I'm, to, to save you. And he said, hear then, O house of David. So now God's not only talking to Ahaz, the representative of the house of David, he's talking to the whole line. He's talking to the whole dynasty. So this is bigger than just Ahaz. Is it too little a thing for you to weary men that you weary my God also? In other words, the Davidic kings have a track record of being faithless. Some of them are okay. Some of them had faith, like David. But many were like King Ahaz. And God's tired of it. He's saying, I'm going to give you a sign. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the maiden shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For behold, the, before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Yahweh will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day of Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Now you're like, what is all the curds and honey? What's that all about? Let me summarize. Um, because of Ahaz's faithlessness and because of the faithlessness of the Davidic kings, they're going to go into exile. We've already talked about that motif in the scriptures. They're going to go into exile. The die is cast, but it's not over because God is promising a child who will secure his promise to the Davidic kings. Remember his promise to the Davidic kings is that they will rule over the kingdom, not only of Israel, but the world forever. That's the promise. So how is God going to guarantee his promise? He's saying, I'm going to guarantee through this sign, through a maiden, a young girl, conceiving and bearing a son. Now, what's interesting is in Isaiah 8, there is a woman who conceives and bears a son. So that there's a sign for Ahaz's day, but that doesn't exhaust it. Because remember, God is talking not only to Ahaz, he's talking to the whole Davidic dynasty. And he gives an immediate guarantee of one child born in Ahaz's day, but then there's a further guarantee. The ultimate guarantee of the ultimate son who will be born of a virgin and we hear that one described in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Basically, in Isaiah 9, 1 through 5, the promise is exile is going to end. There's going to be light. There's going to be rescue. War is going to be ceased. Why? Verse 6. You're going to come out of exile. Why? Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. And what the angel is saying in Matthew 1 is, this is that child. This is the ultimate sign for the Davidic 
throne. This is the ultimate child who is going to rule over not only Israel, but over all the nations of the world. This is why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. Not only conceived, but born of a virgin. Now think about what Joseph is thinking about ahead of all of this. He's thinking very rational, kind of mundane human thoughts. Mary has been unfaithful. I don't want to take on myself the shame of this relationship. What's the right thing for me to do? To divorce, but to do it quietly. And then he gets this message from heaven saying, here's heaven's perspective on what's happening. Rather than being a cause of shame, this is the cause of this is everything. This is everything. This is, this is human history on the line. The rightful king to reign on the throne forever. So how does Joseph react to all of this? He's heard the message. What's Joseph going to do? Is he going to trust? He's an heir to the Davidic throne, just like Ahaz. Is he going to trust God in his message? Or is he going to do what's humanly rational and walk away? Is he going to embrace the shame? Or is he going to walk away? Look at verse 24 through 25, where we see Joseph obeys God's instructions according, concerning the pregnancy. Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but he knew her not, meaning they didn't have relations, until she had given birth to a son. Why is that? Well, because the prophecy says, conceive as a virgin and bear as a virgin. And he called his name Jesus. The portrayal is Joseph is totally obedient. He has faith. He trusts. But think about what this is going to mean for Joseph. Joseph is going to go ahead and marry Mary. He's going to complete the marriage. What are people going to think? People are going to think that Joseph's the father. People are going to think that Joseph, that's the only reason from their perspective why Joseph would marry Mary is if the child was his. What does Joseph have to do? Joseph has to embrace the shame of becoming the adopted father of Jesus. Why does he do it? Because of what the angel said. Rather than being, he knows, because he's got the heavenly perspective from the angel, this isn't a shameful, this is glorious. That doesn't mean that it's going to lessen his shame as he takes on that role as the adopted father of Jesus. Because everyone's going to think, oh, it was Joseph. And in that way, Joseph really becomes sort of the first disciple of Jesus in the book of Matthew. Because what Jesus calls his disciples to, when you look at Jesus and you look at his life, I mean, there's no form or majesty. That's what Isaiah 53 talks about. There's no form or majesty. This, this guy's the king? The king of Israel? The king of the world? Doesn't look like it. 
And in fact, Jesus tells his disciples, you come after me, you're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. You're going to have to embrace shame in this time. What's the payoff? Because the son of man, Jesus, after his death and resurrection and ascension, he's going to come again and he will establish his kingdom. Like Isaiah 9 said, the government will be upon his shoulder and it's going to go to the ends of the earth. But for his disciples, that's what faith looks like now, is embracing the shame of discipleship. It's going to cost you something to follow Jesus. If it costs you nothing to follow Jesus, you probably are not a Christian. Because Jesus, if, 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 if Jesus calls his disciples to total allegiance, total reorientation of your life, because Why? Because he's the rightful king. Yes, you will experience shame. You will experience difficulty. You will experience persecution, even death. Why is it worth it? Why did Joseph think it was worth it? Because Jesus is the rightful king. So why do we celebrate the birth of the Christ? Because Jesus is the only human since Adam, born without a sin nature. Jesus was pure, conceived by the Holy Spirit, never once sinned, living the righteous life that you and I could not live. Why do we celebrate the birth of the Christ? Because Jesus is the God-man who lived a, with a sinful humanity for their good. God is with us. That phrase, God with us, it means that God is for his people, working together with them. Even though they're sinful and rebellious, he is with them and he is for them to rescue them. And Jesus dwelled in a, and lived a human, an authentic human life more than 30 years on this planet. He lived with a sinful humanity for their good, to go to the cross, to die, to rise again, to ascend into heaven, and to be at the right hand of God. He hasn't ceased being a human. Do you know that? When Jesus ascended on high, Jesus hasn't ceased being a human. He took on human nature forever. God-man forever. And being the one mediator between God and man. Why do we celebrate the birth of Christ? Because Jesus saves his people. Those with repentance and faith, those who will swear allegiance to this king, he will save them from their sins. The, the penalty of that sin and the presence of that sin. Jesus doesn't just save us and say, have a nice life, sin all you want, I covered it. No, he says, I've covered you. You have a right standing before God in heaven and I'm gonna clean you. I'm gonna change you. I'm gonna turn your life upside down. If you follow me as king, why do we celebrate the birth of the Christ? Because Jesus is the rightful king who commands our repentance and allegiance. Jesus is a king. Jesus doesn't ask for, Jesus doesn't need to ask for anything. There's a section in Matthew, uh, excuse me, in Acts 17, where Paul is preaching, and he talks to these pagans who are worshiping an unknown God. And he says, uh, this king, he commands everyone everywhere to repent. Jesus isn't asking nicely. He's commanding you this morning to surrender, to bow the knee, to live your whole life for Jesus. No exceptions. And you have two options. You either bow the knee and experience shame now and joy forever 
or you continue in your rebellion and you experience whatever life can offer you now an eternal misery at the hands of a just God forever. Those are the only two options. Following Jesus will bring shame to you now, like with Joseph. It will cost you something. But the shame is overcome by the future reality of Jesus' worldwide kingdom. He is the true king. So seek rescue from sin from the rightful king, Jesus, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the rightful king. You have the right to every, the allegiance of every single person in this room, and not just in this room, in Hood River, and in Oregon, and in the United States, and in the whole globe. You have the rightful reign over all. And we pray that you would save more kingdom citizens for your great namesake, that you would honor yourself Lord, we pray that you would, uh, we would not just think about you as a cute baby in the manger and, and uh, as if that was the end of it, but that we would think of you reverently and with honor as the rightful king of our lives. And Jesus, we pray that you would come again, that you would ju- come to judge sin and to rescue your people and to establish your kingdom over this planet. We long for that and we ask for that. Give us reverent hearts this Christmas, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand with me for a benediction from Galatians 4. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Church, you are sent. Mm